I'm so thankful for the dads that serve in our children's ministry. We have incredible leaders, Philippon and James Spangler, and their kids were in this video. But there are other dads that are serving, and we're so thankful for the male role models that are in the children's ministry. The reality is, dads, that the gospel, when we talk about the life, living a life worthy of the gospel, which is our topic today, the fact is it starts in the home. Dads, you have the most powerful influence on your kids by your example. Most powerful influence. That can be for the positive or it can be for the negative. Those middle-aged guys that have paid thousands of dollars for, in counseling fees because they had a horrific father, they will be the first to tell you, be a great example to your kids. And so that's our admonition this morning. Today, we're going to talk about living life worthy of the gospel. This is not so much on how to give the gospel as it is on our conduct for the gospel. How we are to live our lives in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God, that we would reflect God in the way that we live our life. And so that's going to be our topic today. Now realize we only got one go-around at this, dads. We only have one go-around. Don't live with a bunch of regrets looking back at your years. Now, you will make mistakes. There's no doubt about it. But this is the beauty with God. Even in the midst of our mistakes, there's redemption. There's things that God can do with that. I can remember when my kids were like preteens, we were on vacation, and I had an outburst of anger. I was so frustrated with them that I pretty much let them verbally have it. And about 30 minutes after that moment, I had to stop what we were doing. I had to take my kids aside and say, you know what? God is, is speaking to my heart that I have done something terribly, terribly wrong. And I never want to be a dad that beats you up with words. Will you guys forgive me? And I believe my kids saw humility and a contrite heart. And so, guess what? They were willing to forgive me. They learned about forgiveness through the, even my mistakes. Dads, we have that power in our lives with the kids. But we only have it one time. Now, you might get a second go around with grandchildren, and so you want to do what you, you want to learn all your lessons now. So, let's talk about living a life worthy of the gospel. It doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean that we are consistently living for the Lord. When we live consistently, what happens is that our, children's, our children will see Jesus in us. Our spouse will see Jesus in us. Those around us in our neighborhood or in our workplace, they will see Jesus in us. Today we're finishing up the very first vital sign that Philippians gives us. The vital sign of this focus on the gospel. It's what we are to be as a church. This is what we are to be as individuals. Now we go on to another vital sign next week, but we're going to talk about living a life worthy of the gospel. So it's fair to ask the question, are we in a worthy manner representing Christ? Are we in a worthy manner representing Christ in how we live our life day to day? When nobody, when you think no church people are watching, when you think that, that, that you are all by yourself, is it 
is it a conduct that is pleasing to God? Because the reality is God sees everything all the time, and he wants us to live that way. Now, what Paul's going to do in our passage today in Philippians chapter 1, he's going to lay the foundation and talk about living, uh, to living or dying in a worthy manner. So whether we live or whether we die, we live in a worthy manner. That's going to be foundational because basically it says, I surrender everything to God. I surrender my life completely to him. And with that as the foundation, now I can begin to start living out this life worthy of the gospel. And so we'll delineate what that living worthy of the gospel looks like. But let's pray and ask God to do something beautiful in our midst. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we look at your word today, that you would help us to honestly reflect on our own hearts as to the kind of person that we are. Lord, are we living for you? Would we be honored to die for you? Lord, are we living in a manner worthy of you? I pray that you would help us to think that through as we look at your word. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1, we're going to start at verse 21. Worthy in life and or in death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for you, for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. If you guys recall last week, we talked about how God uses three tools to advance the gospel, how he used that in Paul's life and how he used it in our life. He uses chains, he uses critics, and he also uses crisis. And when we talked about the crisis, Paul talked about that there were people that wanted to kill him. There was a plan, there was a strategy to silence his voice, and so death was really on the table. It was an option, and he felt the imminent threat of death. But he also knew that life was possible as well. And I think secretly in his heart, I think Paul felt deep within that he really was going to live because he wasn't done with the work yet that God had for him to do. And so we pick up on this. This kind of lays the foundation for what Paul is going to do in talking about living a life worthy, uh, living in, uh, worthy of life or living with, for God in worthy of death. And so in this section, Paul's going to go back and forth in this little monologue about life and death, life and death. And in this process, I think we learn a few lessons. His opening statement, though, is a statement that I think a lot of people are familiar with. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you haven't memorized that, I think it's a short phrase that's worthy of memorizing. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what was Paul saying? He said, if I am going to go on in this life, everything should be about Christ. If I live, 
the whole meaning that I have and the whole purpose is that I would live for Christ. But you know what? If I look at the other side, to die is gain. To die is a reward because I get to continue on in eternity giving glory to God. I wonder for ourselves if we can actually say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because the reality is in a room filled with many people today, there's times that we just don't live for Christ. There's times that we live for things that we shouldn't be living for. Some people's mantra is that for me to live is money. Or for me to live is notoriety or fun. Or for me to live is, is power or prestige or to make a name for myself. And if that's our mantra, just know that to die means that we leave it all behind. To die means that we will be forgotten. To die means that we lose it all. What is it that you want in your life? The reality is we can live for all the wrong things. And we can go on in this life and we can think it's about me. We can go on in this life and think it's about what I want to accomplish in this life. And I'm going to have my fun. I'm going to do what I want. But God says, who will you give an account to in the very end? Church, can we say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, in the next few per verses, Paul does this back and forth and, and says, you know, if I were to live or if I were to die, and it's almost as if he's got a choice. Now, we know from a sovereign perspective that God has our days numbered, doesn't he? We don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to live a full life because a full life might be 55, 65, 75, 85, 95. It's all within God's control. Psalm 119, uh, 119 or I'm sorry, 136, uh, verse 16 says that God has our days ordained for us. But I think what Paul is doing here, I think he knows that. I think he's being pragmatic in this evaluation. If the choice were really up to me, I'm going to think this through for you Philippians because I think it's a benefit to you to understand this idea of death benefits and life, death, uh, life benefits. So when he talked about death benefits, he basically says, if I depart, it means that I am with Jesus. The word depart that he uses is used of a soldier that takes up his tent and he moves it from one place to another place. It's also used of somebody that's in captivity who's set free. And so the translation here is basically saying, if my earthly tent is brought up from this life and we move to the next life, I am liberated when I am in Christ. That's what he is trying to give, uh, paint the picture here of. I imagine someday we will be in heaven looking back and wondering to ourselves, why, why did I hold on so long and desire so much to live in that garbage can? I think, I think we could possibly think that when we experience the glory of what heaven is all about. 
See, this, though, though, does fly in the face of a universal belief, I think, that basically says life is good and death is bad. I think those men or women that are on death row, they're not really excited about their future, are they? Those people that are dying of a terminal illness, they're going to do everything they can to grab on to more life. I don't hear too many people saying, man, I can't wait to die. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome when I die. They hold on to as much life as possible. But note what Paul is saying here. Death is a reward. For him, to die early in life would have been an awesome thing. So my question for us is, do we see death as a reward? Do we see it that way? Now we go from the death benefits to the life benefits. And the life benefits, Paul says, to remain means I must be fruitful in my labor. See, Paul reveals here the only reason that we should desire to stay here is for the souls of men and women. For the souls of men and women. Verse 25, Paul says, my desire is to say, stay for your progress and your joy in the faith. The word progress is a picture of a trailblazer who blazed a trail before the army would come in. And Paul is basically saying, I've cut a path for you Philippians to gain spiritual victory in your work for God. See, this would be the pathway of true joy. Everything to Paul was about investing into people. And this brought him excitement. So let me ask you, what excites you in life? What is it that motivates you in life? What allows you to get up with excitement and real, realize that this day is worth it? Is it because we want to invest into people? There's a lot of things, honestly, that excite us that aren't all that really, oh, grand or valuable. But they excite us nonetheless. If I told my wife, I said, if I came home from work and I said, honey, let's go see a movie tonight. I want to see a sci-fi movie. It'll be awesome. First of all, my wife would get this sour look on her face. And then she would give wax on for a very, very long time as to why this is a very bad idea. Now, I'm not saying that my wife just talks too much. She would make it very clear why this is a bad idea. Now, but if I was to come home and say, honey, let's go see our daughter and our granddaughter. Or let's go to the store and I'm going to give you 300 smackers and you can spend it any way you want. You can buy stuff for the, our grandchildren. You can buy something for yourself. I think there would be a little bit more excitement about that option, those two options. Here's the point. We all get excited about things like that in life. But how much are we motivated by investing into people? Church, the souls of men and the word of God are the only two things that are eternal. We need to make an investment in there. So in conclusion to this section, I want to give you two application points that I want you to think about. Number one, 
Being with Jesus for eternity will be awesome. I want you to think about that. Being with Jesus for eternity will be awesome. Paul says here, he says uh, uh, in our passage, he says, I am hard pressed to choose between the two. It's such a difficult decision because he knows what is waiting for him in heaven. If you are a Christ follower, you should have that excitement. Here's a few things about heaven you should know. Number one, heaven is the presence of Jesus and it is the majesty of his power according to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Hell is just the opposite. It's the absence of Jesus and the absence of the majesty of his power. What would it be like for us to experience the full force of the majesty of the power of Jesus? I don't think our earthly minds can even comprehend this. I think heaven is going to be that place that we are going to absolutely love. Jesus just, he said so to his disciples in John 14 when he said, I go to prepare a place. And my friends, I don't think we'll miss what we left behind at all. I think heaven will be a place where there's no temptation because sin will not be in the presence of God. God will have done away with that if you read the end of Revelations 20. Heaven will be a place where we get to work. Now, some of us think that we're going to be playing harps or that we're going to be a part of that heavenly choir. I, I, some of you shouldn't be in any kind of choir here. And I know... There's probably going to be some of you that shouldn't be in the choir there, okay? Maybe you'll have perfect voices. I don't know. And maybe we will. I would imagine that we will sing his praises because the scriptures tell us that. But we're also told we will have work to do. Remember in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, when Jesus is really picturing the kingdom of heaven. And he says, you have been faithful with little, now you will be given much responsibility. See, this place on earth is the testing ground by which we are measured our faithfulness. And if we are faithful here, then we will be given greater responsibility in heaven. Now, when I reverse that, and if I'm not faithful here, what does that mean for heaven? Will you push a broom? I don't know. We'll find out. But we know that faithfulness leads to greater responsibility. We also know that heaven will be a place of extreme satisfaction and joy. We have moments of satisfaction, moments of joy, but we will be living in a perpetual state of satisfaction and joy. Luke chapter uh, 6, verse 21 indicates that. And finally, I believe that we will see and recognize fellow believers. In trying to comfort the Thessalonians, of their thinking that the people that were dead will never ever, they would never see them again or recognize them. He says, No, we're going to be caught up in the air. And the implication is that you will recognize them in eternity. So, number one, heaven, eternity will be awesome. Number two, we must live with purpose here. Everything about Paul was living with purpose. So my question is, how are you investing into people? Because people are the, is the purpose. 
How are you investing into your children, moms and dad? Deuteronomy 6-7 says that when we lie down, when we rise up, when we walk by the way, we're to teach the principles of God to our children. Are we doing that? Husbands, are you using every opportunity to invest into your wife or wife, are you investing into your husband? If you are not communicating well, let me encourage you four times a week to sit on the couch, just the two of you, and just look at each other and talk. If you have nothing to say, then just look at each other. It'll get very awkward really quick, and then you'll want to talk about how awkward it is. But make it a practice to communicate. And are you investing into your core so that you can share Christ with your neighbors, your friends, your relatives? So this is foundational. Paul is basically saying we have to lay it all on the line for God we have to be willing to live in a manner worthy of death or for life. And this is all foundational. This means that we abandon ourselves to our desires and we align ourselves with God. See, in the world, if our desire is for riches, then the desire for God is that we would be rich in faith. If our desire is to make a name for ourselves in this world, then our desire for God, it switches where we make a name for God. If our desire is to be happy in this world, when we understand Christ, he now makes that desire to be holy. Which is it? The world or God? How are we living? We are his pawn. And so now we look at how we are to live life worthy of the gospel. Take a look at verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponent. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same kind of conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now here's the practical nature of Paul. Paul says, okay, I've come to the conclusion that I'm going to live. So true to nature of Paul, I'm going to live life on purpose. He always did that. I can remember a time when he was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And it was a tearful time because they knew that they would never see Paul again. And Paul says this. It's just, it's something that I don't even know that I can completely say or completely comprehend. But this is what Paul says. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. How can we say that? That's a very difficult thing. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I might finish the race and complete the task that Jesus Christ has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Who were the recipients? People. It's about people. And he had a gospel focus. 
Now what Paul wants to do is he wants to rub off on the Philippians. He wants this same mindset to be in them, and he wants it to be in us as well. So three things I see in this passage. Number one, he wants us to live consistently in our life. He wants us to live consistently, and he shows that in the phrase, let your manner of life be. And he's going to talk about worthy of the gospel, but he uses this phrase that was actually robbed from that day. It was actually a political statement. It was a political statement that meant live as a Roman citizen. Let your life be. It was taken from their headlines, and he's tapping into this to apply it to the gospel. And so this, this phrase was something that they that would have perked them up and, oh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I've heard that a lot before. Now, if I said this sta- statement, make America great again, all of a sudden, oh, yeah, politics, politics. I heard that so much during the, pol- uh, the, during the political race, and you even hear it today. Now, whether you like President Trump or don't like it, it was a genius statement because what it was designed to do was to tap into our patriotic belief that we are citizens of a great country and that we are part of making it great again. In this situation, Paul is tapping into this kind of statement with the Philippians to live as a Roman citizen because they were of a colony of Rome. But instead of Rome being the focal point, the focal point was the gospel. And so it would be like saying, make the gospel great. We don't have to say again, because it never ceased to be great. Make the gospel great. And so he's tapping into that and applying the gospel to their situation. Make the gospel great. My friends... This is our job to do, to do consistently, because we represent a different kind of kingdom. Several years ago, I was in the country of Moldova, and we were ministering in the, the poorest part of Moldova called Prednistrovia. And we were going around with some of the leaders in that country, and they were glad we were driving around in a mashutka. A mashutka is just a little minibus. It was the strangest little thing uh, because they had benches that faced each other, and you're face to face with total strangers. But it was, you know, we were with, the, I was with these leaders, and they were telling me things about the city and, and some of the history of the city. You could tell there was a, just a sense of pride about this. This, this whole tour that we were on. Well, one of the stops, an elderly lady got on the butt, the mashutka, and she was right in front of me. And so I am like knee to knee. Our, our knees couldn't have been more than three inches apart. And we're looking at each other, and she starts talking to me. And she starts talking to me in a passionate way. And I'm like, what are you saying? She's speaking in Russian. I look to my translator, and he was no good because he just went. (laughs) But she seemed to be really engaging in this conversation, and she started to lean forward. And so I started to lean forward, and I'm just kind of playing along, and I'm listening to her. It was all fun until she extended the right hand of fellowship and groped me. 
Seriously, true story. And I said, bad touch, bad touch. And the bus pulls over. We get out of the bus. And I, it was a very traumatic experience. I, I'm not making this up and I'm not embellishing it. Now, this was actually horrific to the national leaders. Why? Because it misrepresented their people. They were going back and forth saying, it's, this isn't how we are. This isn't the way. She was just crazy. She was out of her mind. Don't worry. I mean, don't, don't think of us in that way. She, they cared about how we thought of them and their country. My friends, we should have the same kind of concern with how people think of our king and our Lord. Because we are to consistently represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. This isn't a call for perfection. It's a call for consistency in living out our faith. Dad's your sons and daughters, they're watching you. Are you consistently loving your wife? Are you consistently making upright and moral decisions? Are you consistently keeping God as the first priority of your family? How is that seen in your life? Are you consistently loving those that are far from God? Church, the key to victorious, purposeful, worthy life is consistency. Here's the second thing that Paul points out in this passage, that we are to live out, uh, out uh, in cooperation. Notice what he says. He says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, the second key to living out a worthy gospel is that we are united on the gospel. And it's interesting, the word stand firm is a word that is literally translated where we get our word athletics. And so Paul is painting a picture of a team sport. He is talking about living a life as a team for God. So whatever is true of a basketball team, whatever is true of a football team or a soccer team, it is true of a gospel team. So how could a gospel team work in our world today? Well, what if you were to identify other Christ followers in your workplace? What if you were to identify other Christ followers that attend maybe other churches in your neighborhood? What if you were to get together with those people and form a team and say, we're going to pray for our neighbors. We're going to pray for our coworkers. We're going to pray with all of our hearts. And let's just say also you started using and employing your spiritual gifts and so the person who has the gift of hospitality invites people over along with you to their home. The person that has the gift of administration is keeping a record of people that they're praying for and updating prayer needs because they're asking people, how can we pray for you? And the person who has the gift of gab is that person that is socializing and, and inter interjecting the gospel anytime there is an opportunity. 
See, I don't know exactly how it's supposed to work, but we get this idea of what Paul is saying is that it is a team effort, a cooperation, and this is how we can victoriously, purposefully live a life worthy of the gospel. And here's the final thing that he says. He says we are to live confidently in terms of our suffering. We are to live confidently in terms of our suffering. Look at what he says in verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. We will have opponents if we live a righteous life in this world. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaging in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. See, this makes me think of warriors. This makes me think of soldiers that go to the battlefield. When a soldier goes to the battlefield, there is a camaraderie, a unity that says, we know what we are fighting for and we know what the cost of this battle is going to be. And we will not have fear. Why? The answer is in 1 John. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Do you realize that we as believers have power? We are told that we have received the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 says that that Holy Spirit is a spirit of power. And my friends, we have, seen, uh, we have seen in the history books those people that have gone out in great power, starting with the disciples who went out without fear, understanding even though their life was on the line that they would proclaim Christ and that God would, that God would be with them. Not necessarily God will preserve their life because 11 out of the 12 died as martyrs. But it was the power of God that worked through them to share the gospel. It was the church, early church fathers that paid a price. They lost a lot of their possessions. Some of them lost their life. But it was the power of God that was flowing through them. When I took Perspectives, which is a class on missions, I found it interesting that during, I think it's around the 800s, that the Vikings came into power and the Vikings were going into Christian neighborhoods in foreign lands and they were killing all the, all the husbands. They were killing all the husbands and it was really a scouting trip to find a new wife. And so they would take the husbands, or take the martyred, or get rid of the martyred husbands, and take the wife as their own, and they would have them as their wife. They didn't have a choice in the matter. So it was a forced marriage with the guy that just killed your husband. Can you imagine that? But what's interesting in the history books is that it was the power of God that was working through these Christ-following women that now saw these new Viking husbands as their mission. And before long, these Vikings put down their swords and picked up their Bibles. And this is how the gospel, one of the ways the gospel spread to the Scandinavian countries. Amazing. How did they do it? Power of God. So here's my question. We can marvel at those who are in our rearview mirror. 
But is God still powerful today? Is, it, is he just as powerful as when the church spread in the er early years? I believe he is. I believe I could go on and I could share stories of people from Mission View, of your faith and your fearlessness in representing and living out a life worthy of the gospel. The point here is that there is a powerful witness that can and should happen in our life as we live out a life worthy of the gospel. Paul points out in this passage that he presses forward for the sake of Christ. In other words, it is a privilege to represent Christ. Is it a privilege for each of us? He also says that it's a privilege to press forward in engaging in suffering just as Paul suffered the same kind of conflicts. As we back away from chapter 1, and I think about the vital sign of the gospel, it makes me ask the question as a pastor, church, do we have the gospel as our focal point? Do we have the gospel as our focal point? And I'm going to answer this. I think that our coming days are better than our past. I think it takes time to build momentum. It takes time for us to understand what our mission is. I'm not saying the past is bad. I'm just saying I am so looking forward to our future because I believe the gospel is present within this church. And for those of you that are newer to the ministry, I welcome you to the vision. Because the vision is that we want to see every man, woman, and child within our community that they have an opportunity to see, hear, and experience the gospel. And that's going to happen with Mission View along with other churches. You will see a greater growing participation with other churches in the future. I welcome you to the mission. That's our vision. The mission is that we make disciples who understand what it means to have an intimate relationship with a living God. That they grow in this sense of community with each other. And that we discover what it is that we are to do to have an influence in this world. My friends, when we start doing these things, God will do beautiful things in our midst. Lord Jesus, I pray that you do only what you can do. Help us to have a mindset that if we live, we live for Christ. If we die, we die for Christ. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Lord, help us to be cognizant of the kind of example that we have in this world. Help us to live a life worthy of the gospel, to be consistent in our faith, to cooperate with others, and to be willing to suffer in allowing the power of God to work through us. Lord, we pray that you would do that kind of work in our midst, and we'll give you praise for all the incredibly beautiful things that you do.